0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the culture that Disney has helped create and how they did it, using cuteness as a weapon to push ideas from racist stereotypes and segregation to the more recent masterful use of hollow nods towards progressivism while reinforcing the ethics of individualism in order to give systemic injustice a pass. Clips today are from propaganda. Still Processing, Lindsay Ellis, American Hysteria, Wisecrack, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, and Cracked.
1: These days, Disney is one of the most influential media companies in the world. It's hard to believe that Disney almost went bankrupt right after it got started. In 1940, the studio had sunk $2.3 million into making epic musical work Fantasia. The movie was a financial loss, and Disney had exceeded its loan limits. So the studio turned to a simple story of a flying elephant to make some money. Dumbo was born. In the film, Dumbo is befriended by a group of crows, Maybe you saw Dumbo as a kid and didn't think too much about it. But listen again to that crow's song.
2: <laughs> Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I seen a horse fly. Oh, I seen a dragon
3: fly. <laughs> yeah, I seen a house fly. <laughs> <laughs> see, I seen all that too. I seen a peanut stand and heard a rubber band. I
4: seen a needle that went its out.
5: Say, boy?
1: These crows are clearly standing in for black people. Their way of speaking, their clothes, even their name are racial stereotypes. The main bird's name is Jim Crow, in reference to America's racial segregation laws. Some of the crows are voiced by black actors, but Jim Crow himself was portrayed by Cliff Edwards, a white actor and ukulele player better known for voicing jiminy cricket
5: when
3: you wish upon a star it makes no
1: difference who you are many people have examined the racial politics of disney animals over the years the documentary film mickey mouse monopoly explores this issue along with other critical perspectives on disney here's a clip from the documentary which starts with a scene from Tarzan and includes quotes from two media scholars and two small children.
6: Kids in Africa see it. They see a white man in Africa who's superior, swinging from trees, and they see no Africans. And they see gorillas being the ones they relate to. Is it promoting white supremacy?
1: i never seen
7: any black people in Disney's movie. I can't think of any um, Disney movies that have black people that are good.
8: Disney has very, very few Asian or Asian-American characters in their children's films, and that's probably why the Siamese cats really stand out for me. The question is, what type of stories get invented, circulated, perpetuated in the public
3: imagination, and why.
1: Scholar, writer, and activist, Walida Amarisha, is someone who's been thinking hard about what stories Disney tells and why. She teaches a class on race and Disney films at Portland State University. Her class does a deep read on Disney, looking at the role that animated animals play in defining perceptions of race, class, and gender. You heard Walida if you listened to our episode on feminism and sci-fi, where she spoke up for the rights of droids in Star Wars. I'm happy to welcome Walida back to our show. It's always such a thrill to have her on. So one of the requirements of your class on race and Disney films is for students to write a personal essay about their history with Disney films. So something you could tell us about your history with Disney, like, did you watch a lot of Disney as a kid? Um, and when did you start thinking critically about the way Disney uses animals uh, with an eye on race specifically.
3: Sure. So, I mean, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge, you know, the kind of uh, ways that Disney has influenced all of us. And I think that, you know, um, I feel like people either, you know, love Disney or love to hate Disney. Um, and uh, oftentimes uh, aren't kind of thinking about it in a, in a holistic way. And so I think uh, for students coming into the class, it's really hard to critique Disney, right? Because Disney has been part of the vast majority of our lives since before we could remember a time without Disney. And I think it's really important to recognize that that's actually part of Disney's marketing plan. And their goal is to get folks, you know, when they're babies, which is why they market products to babies, uh, to get folks... You know, before they, they know that there's such a thing as a world without Disney. Um, and so, and to kind of inculcate themselves in this magical realm and this idea of nostalgia so that they actually, um, don't fall within the realm of critique. Pretty much every term I'm accused of ruining people's childhoods. Um, you know, and so my, my goal is to try and find a way to, you know, to acknowledge that emotional connection while still saying, and that that actually means we have to critique it even more, not less. That's funny. You point out that, like, I, I
1: personally can't remember a time before I knew about Disney. It's just always a part of your culture and always a part of your life. It's Disney is such a cultural touchstone
3: for our pop culture. It's where it all begins. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I think that that can't be overstated. And, you know, again, that that is a concerted effort by the Disney Corporation to do that, right? Um, and uh and to kind of, you know, uh infuse itself into every part of, of American culture. The other thing about Disney is that Disney works so hard, so people won't think about it as a corporation. And it's been incredibly successful at that, right? And many of my students uh, have an incredible hard time thinking of Disney as a corporation. And I, you know, I'll say, okay, what is the definition of a corporation? And we'll go through it. What is the point of a corporation? To make money for its char- shareholders. Students are very clear about that. I'm like, what is the point of the Disney corporation? To make people happy. Right? <laughs> because uh, Disney has done a phenomenal job of marketing self- itself in a global context.
9: There's something inherently appealing about the moral imperative of these movies, right? This fight against evil. You've got Steve Rogers, who continues to be this voice of reason about the dangers of fascism, the dangers of dictatorship, the dangers of governments having too much power, right? Because the government in these movies is constantly trying to apprehend and control and wrangle and, and have access to all this intergalactic, um, Wizardry, I guess, for lack of a better word. Steve Rogers being Captain America, of course. Yes, Steve Rogers, Captain America. And I, like I said, I I do think that it was really reassuring. I mean, there's these moments in Endgame. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but I was getting kind of (laughs) choked up. You know, in the scene in Endgame when everybody's assembling and like, you know, everybody's there, everybody's putting down their differences and they're like, we have to defeat Thanos because humanity. And it's not even just humanity. It's like, the the
7: galaxy
9: yes the galaxy there was something about watching that scene you know in late february and feeling a lot of despair and a lot of desolation i mean there's still horrible things happening in this country and then turning on this movie and watching Hundreds, dozen, millions of species, intergalactic beings come together, Mm -hmm. uniting against Mm -hmm. one shared cause. I mean, it made your girl emotional. And, and, you know, it's it's cheesy and it's corny, but it really meant something to me. But then, that moment passed. Uh The sun came out in New York. (laughs) We also had daylight savings time, which I also like to call... Depression switch time, okay? My wow. mood improved. Yeah. I felt a little more invigorated, and I started watching these movies with a much more careful eye. And I was like, hold on a second. You mean to tell me they've been making these movies for over a decade, okay? 12 years, and you have <laughs> still not managed to decenter the whiteness of this universe. The series is called Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is not called Marvel Cinematic White People. It is literally called the universe. And so, <laughs> in this epic portrayal of the universe, you mean to tell me all the main characters are white? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I had to open my eyes a little bit wider, you know? Like, I was really letting myself tune out. I was gorging on these movies and I was allowing myself to overlook the problems within them. And it just teleported me back to my childhood, which was full of all the iconic Disney cartoons. Mm. And I was just struck by this really disturbing thought that the entertainment obsessions of my adulthood were going to resemble my childhood. Oh. In that everything was mildly problematic, and I was just willing to overlook it for the sake of being entertained.
7: I mean, you've zeroed in on, on some of the Disney problem, right? Which is basically that, that company owns a huge piece of every living person's childhood. hmm And it's not just Disney, like the Disney that we all know, in this sort of generic Mickey Mouse sort of way. It's all of the live-action Disney movies, obviously, and Pixar. hmm They own ESPN, ABC. What? And they also own Lucasfilm, which means... They own Star Wars. (laughs) Wow. They have a whole galaxy. It's bonkers. Everything. Oh, I'm not done. Wait one second. Disney now has Marvel. Hmm. It also bought
9: Fox. What? When did that happen?
7: It bought 20th Century Fox (laughs) a couple years ago. And they need new childhoods, basically. Mm. My mom is no longer a child, but when she was a child... My mother loved Mickey and Minnie, and this company and its movies made such a huge impression on her, <sighs> mostly, I think, not through the movies, but through the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh-huh. I remember this. And my mother had a terrible childhood, and this was the thing that made it pleasurable to her. They built an empire, basically, off of these memories, this company, you know, off this, off this good feeling.
9: I know. And I I know a lot of these soundtracks by heart, you know, and I did spend a ton of time in my youth and adolescence watching Disney movies. I mean, in the very beginning of the pandemic, I had this moment when my girlfriend and I thought it'd be cute to rewatch The Little Mermaid. And it felt really harmless. It felt like a good, you know, rabbit hole to go down. And... I was, you know, I remembered, I was kind of scaring myself with how much I remembered of the dialogue and I remember all the songs, mm, mm-hmm. but then re-watching it with adult eyes, you know, you start to see all these new details. I mean, Sebastian, I mean, that song Under the Sea slaps, but he is Jamaican. Inexplicably, he's when just Jamaican. Don't.
8: Why, if Ariel was my daughter, I'd show her who was boss.
9: And he's cantankerous. He's kind of lazy. He doesn't want to do his job. Yeah. And then when Ariel actually gets to the place where Prince Eric lives, it's an island. My guess is in the middle of the Caribbean, Eric's American. Everyone that works in the island is British.
10: Mm.
9: So clearly there's some kind of colony situation going on. Mm. Then you fast forward to the middle of the movie, there's this wedding. I had to slow it down because I noticed this row of all these white guests. And then behind them, a row of black servants. Uh... And I'm like, hell no, this movie is racist. And it's not the kind of racist where they're like, Sebastian, you're an N-word. No, it's like, we're just going to set this within this colonialistic, you know, framework that is just inherently racist to take as normalcy. All these movies have these hideous elements to them. I mean... I was thinking a lot about when I was a little kid and I was babysitting for my cousins and they loved Lady and the Tramp. And guess what song they love the most? The song featuring the Siamese cats.
5: We are Siamese, if you
9: please. Which uses all these, you know, Um, all these Orientalist tropes that just kind of further dehumanize people of color and make them seem less human. I mean, they're literally less human, but it's not enough for them to be animals. They have to make them... Racist animal stereotypes to kind of further denigrate and allow Asian people to right. be the butt of the joke in that movie, which is one of the reasons we are where we are today. But I just, you know, it's it's really unsettling to think about how woven in to the feel good infrastructure all of these tropes and stereotypes have been over the years.
7: Oh yeah, I mean it. It. it I mean, we could you can start with the Little Mermaid, but then you got you know go all the way back to. The early Mickey Mouse movies. I'm thinking specifically of Steamboat Willie and Trader Mickey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. First of all, what was Mickey trading?
9: Right. Uh,
7: that's that's my first question.
9: Oh my god!
7: The way Trader Mickey works is is Mickey and his dog show up on this island, and it is populated by by black savages who are who just look like the worst minstrel poster caricatures. This is, this is the basis upon which this giant company built its empire. I'm so
9: depressed. That's horrible.
7: Things like this recur throughout the animated movies, right? Yes. So Disney is acknowledging this. One of the ways they've acknowledged it is to never be able to see Song of the South, it, Disney's most racist movie. And, <sighs> you know, it never got a home video release and you can't find it on Disney Plus but the movies you can find on Disney Plus that do have some problems like Dumbo and Lady in the Tramp and The Aristocats mm-hmm. The
9: Aristocats Jenna mm-hmm. I mean it's everywhere honestly
7: <laughs> Those movies now come with a warning label that includes such lines as This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now Okay Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. So obviously Disney knows it's got all these movies in its past. What can it do to atone in the present Mm -hmm. for mistakes that people who currently work there weren't necessarily responsible for in the first place?
9: Yeah, and also, I mean, it's worth noting that for all the movies that Disney put this label on, right, and outright removed, The Little Mermaid is not part of it, you know? And, And again, it's like, we make these decisions based on blatant racism and not so blatant racism, but it's worth interrogating how all of these movies reinforce the ideas that are so harmful in the formation of this country. And like, that's the part that I think really sits with me, which is they've decided Yes, absolutely. This is super inappropriate in the following eight movies, but the rest of the movies, they seem fine and no one has a problem with it.
1: One of the first films you discuss in your class is uh, the 1967 animated film, The Jungle Book. Yes. And this, of course, is a film that's all about animals. It has you know, Baloo, there's the bear, there's Bagheera, the panther, there's Shere Khan, who's a tiger, who's a villain. Can you talk about how you use The Jungle Book to discuss race with your students?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that The Jungle Book is and is an incredibly important film because it shows the D- Disney ideology in many ways, the clearest, right? So, you know, Walt Disney had a very clear framework about how the world should be, right? And he was very clear and upfront about that. Walt Disney had an incredibly conservative framework. You know, he felt that, you know, uh, women should be in the home. He felt that you know, there shouldn't be queer and trans folks in the world. (laughs) He felt that, you know, folks of color should keep to their menial, you know, places, right? He was very clear on this sort of uh, immense conservative worldview. And that worldview is infused in all of these Disney films. And I think you can see it in, in some ways most clearly in The Jungle Book, right? The Jungle Book is actually the last film that Walt Disney worked on personally before he passed away in 1966. And, you know, there are great scholars who who really look at it. One of them being um, Greg Met, uh, Metcalf, who has an article really saying that in many ways, the Jungle Book is a complete repudiation by Disney of all of these, um, you know, changing times, right? The 1960s, what's happening in the 1960s in this country? Well, everything, right? We have, you know, the uh, women's rights movement, women liberation movement, we have the, you know. Uh, beginnings of, you know, gay liberation movements. We obviously have third world, black, um, Latino, uh, Asian, indigenous liberation movements happening here and globally, right? And that the Jungle Book is actually a complete repudiation of all of that. And if you go through what comes out so clearly when you watch the Jungle Book is there is a natural order of things. Things have a natural order. Everyone has their place in a hierarchy. And it is once you step out of that place That everything falls apart and things cannot come back together and society can't function unless everyone is in their proper place. Um, And we see that with, you know, especially with the differences between the original book by Kipling and the changes that Disney makes to it, right, to, to kind of emphasize this. So, you know, in in the book, right, um there's, you know, there's a reason that that uh Mowgli can't go to the village for a while. But at the end of the film, Shere Khan is gone, right? Mowgli tied that stick to his burning stick to his tail. He's gone. Seemingly, we've won. There's no more danger. Why can't Mowgli stay in the jungle, right? So, that's not the natural order of things. And they they reinforce this again and again and again, right?
1: So let's talk about another film you talk about in your class, which is The Lion King. And this film is one of the more recent ones that maybe you were talking about watching as an adult. It came out in 1994. Uh, does the message remain the same over those 30 years that, uh, people should stay in their place, defend the status quo, put like with like? Or did you, do you see a radical difference between the way The Lion King deals with these issues versus The Jungle Book?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question and I think that, you know, the the idea with Disney, um and there's actually an article called this is that the more things change the more they stay the same, right? That one of the things that makes Disney incredibly a brilliant corporation is that it takes the critiques that are being given to it and it seemingly incorporates those critiques while keeping the same underlying ideology. So, you know, the the Little Mermaid actually was a response to a feminist critique of saying these old Disney princess films, right, with Cinderella and Snow White and dear god Sleeping Beauty who spends, you know, the vast majority of the film either singing, cleaning or sleeping, right? Um, you know, these are these are not appropriate images for young girls to have anymore. So then they gave you the Little Mermaid, right, who's this strong, empowered, independent, adventurous young woman until she sees a man and then she's willing to give up everything for him. Right. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we absolutely see this in the lion King, right? Because, um, so again, we have the lion being coded as, you know, the, the top of the hierarchy, the ruling monarchy, right? And so being coded as white and we have the hyenas who are voiced by, you know, by, uh, by two people of color um, and and really the main two people of color voices that we hear in that, um, we, you know, we see that the hyenas being coded as people of color. And they are ghettoized, right? They're given the bad lands. They're given the lands where the light doesn't touch, where nothing grows, right? And they are starving to death. And, you know, this this very clear analogy to, you know, folks who are in, you know, inner city, overexploited, under resourced communities. Uh and And when, when the, when the hyenas leave their segregated, you know, community, right, and try and take over with the support, you know, supporting Scar's leadership, that's when everything Is destroyed, right? The land itself rebels against this unnatural order of things. The land, you know, the water dries up. There's no food to eat. Like the land itself becomes desolate. The sun goes away. It's just dark and there's nothing to eat. And everything's terrible because we did not keep to the natural order of things. And it is only when that, that hierarchy and that segregation is reinstituted that we, that we see the sun immediately comes out, the water begins to flow, the animals are happy, and everything is back to the way it should be. And I think the one other thing about The Lion King that's so important is that this film the, as you said, came out in 1994, this is the era of the end of apar- legal apartheid in South Africa, right? That, you know, Nelson Mandela came home, that we're seeing the dismantling of the, the legal apartheid system that people had fought against so hard, right? Which was, uh you know, one of the, you know, most brutal forms of segregation the world has ever seen, and let's be clear, modeled on American segregation, And so it is at this time, when this country that the whole world has been looking at is dismantling legal segregation, that Disney puts out a film whose whole message is, if you don't segregate people to their proper place... Then then everything will be destroyed.
0: I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. Talk like
6: you. You see it's true. And they me. Can I to be human
2: too?
4: The original Dumbo comprises basically the first act of the 2019 remake, and from there goes into what appears to be a winking meta critique of Disney itself.
1: Join me and my family. Let me take us all into the future.
6: Let me take us all
4: to Dreamland. With really obvious and heavy-handed references to Disneyland in its theme park, owned by Michael Keaton's villain, Vandermeer. Himself a weird mixture of P.T. Barnum, Walt Disney, and... Like Vanderbilt? There are blatant nods to actual attractions like the Astro Orbiter and the Carousel of Progress and just park aesthetic in general, there's a wonder of science attraction that, well. <laughs> Dad, wonders of science. Don't worry, honey, it's bought by Exxon Mobil. Also within this is a weird half-assed critique of the overuse of the word dream and the need to feel like a child again. You've made me a child again. I'm still parsing out what the intention of this weird take on Disney's own past and corporate culture is meant to say, besides a weird, well, you can't hate their corporate monopoly if they make fun of themselves. Self-awareness is relatable. It feels like commentary, but it's commentary that does not say anything. Vandermeer's park looks like Disneyland, But beyond that, it seems to be an indictment of P.T. Barnum more than anything, especially since the film ends with Dumbo going back to the jungle and woke circus getting rid of all their animal acts. Mary Poppins Returns also has a curious relationship to wealth and power. Jane has grown up to be a union organizer. No, it's the uh, Society for the Protection of the Rights of the Underpaid Citizens of England. A labor organizer. Which, considering Walt's relationship to unions itself, is kind of hilarious. But she is mostly portrayed as kind of a ditz, and the ending relies on her asking the lamplighters for unpaid labor, not for the benefit of any kind of, you know, labor union, but to help her save her house that she owns. Jane's advocacy doesn't really do anything for organized labor. If anything, it's just more, you know, just ripping off the original. You know, well, her mom was a suffragette, so Jane's a pinko, I guess. (laughs) But the main plot surrounds the Banks, and also the Bank, which wants to repossess the Banks house. In the original, the Bank is portrayed as something of a neutral evil, heartless and bottom line obsessed, something that Mr. Banks overvalues at the expense of his family. Meanwhile, in sequel land, the main villain is a rogue Colin Firth, the Bad Richmond.
3: In two days, Banks will be out on that street and the house will be ours.
4: The Banks family is on the cusp of losing their house because Michael is bad at money and Jane is a communist. A home they love so much they've tied their identity to it in much the same way that Mr. Banks did his job in the original. Towards the end, it looks like they're going to lose their house unless they do the thing by the stroke of midnight, but don't worry. The one bad man is removed. They are able to keep their house because the bank itself is good and moral and is on the side of the middle class. And thus,
0: the house is yours.
4: The Banks' identity and happiness can continue to be tied to their possession of material things. And I find that interesting, because in the original, Mr. Banks lets go of the thing that he had erroneously attached his own value and sense of identity to. But in the remake, don't worry, they never have to have that moment of self-revaluation, because they never lose the thing they were worried about losing, because good capitalist is here to save the day. And he's played by Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke is over here like, Oh, the bank would never intentionally hurt their trusting
5: customers. Nearly double the profits of this bank. Yes, by wringing it out of the customer's pocket.
4: A large business always has the best intentions. Big corporations aren't bad, but the rare nefarious individual. That is the bad one. It is not the system that is bad, but a few bad apples. If anything, the transition from old Disney to new Disney is a transition from Monarchy is good to Capitalism is good. There's always a good king, or a good bank, or a good businessman. And these conclusions, while they pay lip service to progressive ideals, ultimately conclude that nothing of the status quo need be challenged, not really. Which feels pretty convenient when the company producing these things own more and more of the media that we consume every day.
5: But now Disney will have full control of Hulu, uh, will control its customer management, its technology, its data sharing.
4: This is not to say that empowering women to be leaders or a family keeping their house or cruelty-free circuses are a bad thing. But if that's all you got, then that's not progress. That's just marketing.
10: Disney's America, the train would take people to a number of stops through the national landscape and history. And as you might imagine, things get, well, you'll see. In the theme park, a kid could fast forward 25 years and visit a Civil War fort. And with the quote, wizardry of Disney's Circle Vision 360 technology even experience actual combat with authentic reenactments. Then they can head over to President's Square and honor the fight for independence and the founding fathers' messages they can take in the Industrial Revolution through the factory town of Enterprise and even embark on a, quote, high-speed adventure through a turn-of-the-century mill culminating in a narrow escape from its fiery vat of molten steel. I want to go on that. You could visit a faux Ellis island and learn all about early immigration and its effects on national culture using The Muppets for some reason. At Victory Field, kids and adults alike can celebrate aviation and the heroes of World War II, where, quote, guests may parachute from a plane or operate tanks and weapons in combat and experience firsthand what America's soldiers have faced in defense of freedom. There's the state fair section with classic roller coasters and Ferris wheels with a vast background of rolling cornfields. And there's even an old-fashioned baseball field where all can relive the early days of America's favorite pastime. Hop over then to the family farm, which, quote, pays homage to the working farm, the heart of early American families. Visitors see how crops are harvested, learn how to make homemade ice cream or milk a cow, and even participate in a nearby country wedding, barn dance, buffet, and all. But this sprawling Americana included some other sections that raised some serious eyebrows. Native America depicted tribal life before and during colonization. Quote, Guests may visit an Indian village representing eastern tribes or join in a harrowing Lewis and Clark raft expedition through pounding rapids and churning whirlpools. But here's where the controversy really got cookin'. In regards to the Civil War section, Disney Imagineer and park designer Bob Weiss made the mistake of announcing that, quote, We want to make you feel what it was like to be a slave or what it was like to escape through the Underground Railroad. As you might imagine, the pushback was swift and damning, with environmentalists working against the 180-acre endeavor outside of DC, and with academic historians launching a group called Project Historic America. One of the group members, historian David McCullough, said Disney's America, quote, would be an appalling commercialization and vulgarization of the scene of our most tragic history, and I would deplore it. An article that ran in The Nation rebuked Disney's poor history on American truth, calling it Mickey Mouse history. Disney's CEO at the time, Michael Eisner, Thought the park could bring emotional stories of the past alive for the kids of today, and he didn't think the criticism was fair. I sat through many history classes where I read some of their stuff and I didn't learn anything. It was pretty boring. Eisner would defend the park by telling reporters that they had spent $100,000 on historical advisors trying to get the stories right. But regardless, the growing Project Historic America, which would eventually include famous documentarian Ken Burns, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times with the title, quote, "'The Man Who Would Destroy American History.'" The pushback had seriously surprised Eisner, who would say years later, quote, "'I expected to be taken around on people's shoulders.'" He has since expressed regret over some of these comments. David McCullough, who was then the president of the Society of American Historians, said of the project, quote, We have so little left that is authentic, that is real, and to replace it with plastic history is a sacrilege. Eisner's response? Quote, The First Amendment gives you the right to be plastic. A couple months later, 3,000 people would reportedly march on Washington, chanting things like, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Disney has got to go, with one sign reading, Mickey didn't free the slaves, learn the truth. Clearly, this was a pretty bonkers idea, one that 1990s culture, and certainly our current culture, would not have accepted. But Disney heads Michael Eisner and Bob Weiss did have some interesting intentions that are worth mentioning. Eisner was quoted as saying of the slavery representations, quote, We are going to be sensitive, but we will not be showing the absolute propaganda of the country. We will show the civil war with all its racial conflict. Weiss said, quote, We are going to deal with real issues in the diverse population of this country as it was defined through struggles, so you'll see some pretty rough issues dealt with in this park, as well as a lot of fun things you would expect to be a part of one of our parks. You will not see Mickey Mouse walking around in the Civil War reenactments because he doesn't belong there. And Eisner promised to honor, quote, the gritty reality. But of course, as the park's general manager said, quote, We don't want people to come out with a dour face. It is going to be fun with a capital F. Over the last few years, there's been a loud and powerful movement to no longer Disneyfy our history by ignoring the brutality that's marked this nation forever. To no longer Disneyfy our present, to actually see what the structural inequalities are doing to our most vulnerable children and adults. And to no longer Disneyfy our future into a simple technological utopia, and instead see clearly the potential for catastrophes we haven't been trying hard enough to prevent. As pushback, there's now an equally loud movement to honor a far more plastic, patriotic past, present, and future those who want to keep it cute no matter what. And a lot of people do. <laughs>
11: Disney's reign of cuteness was not a happy accident or mere coincidence. Walt was basically ruthless in his quest to make all things adorable. And in the process, Disney has spent the last 100 years acquiring stories, adapting them, and ultimately twisting their original artistic intentions beyond recognition. All of which is to say, is all this cuteness actually super uncute? But to see the Disney method in action, let's dissect an early example, Pinocchio. For the uninitiated, the story revolves around the titular puppet who just wants to be a real boy, as the magical Blue Fairy tells him his wish will be granted if he proves to be brave, truthful, and unselfish.
9: And someday you will be a real boy. A real boy!
11: But Pinocchio's not about that life. He runs away from home, joins a puppet show, and lies to the Blue Fairy about it, which famously leads to this. The fairy lets him off the hook, but Pinocchio doesn't stay out of trouble for long. He soon whisked away on an all-expense trip to the dubiously named Pleasure Island. There, Pinocchio and his resort buddies engage in all sorts of vices, from drinking to smoking to gambling, only to find out that they're turning into donkeys. But with the help of his cricket companion, Pinocchio narrowly escapes, only to learn that his daddy got lost at sea looking for him. It says here he uh, he went looking for you, and uh, uh, he was swallowed by a whale. Pinocchio then sacrifices his little wooden life to save the old man from the Ill- belly of the whale, but lo and behold, now that Pinocchio is good, he's brought back to life by the Blue Fairy, but this time as a real boy. And everyone lives happily ever after, if only life was that easy. But what if I told you that the author of Pinocchio, Carlo Collodi, never intended for his story to give children that warm, fuzzy feeling? And that once Disney had bought the rights to the story, the company whitewashed Pinocchio to fit the big mouse's cutesy aesthetic. If you have any doubt, then I present to you the original ending of Collodi's Pinocchio. Without loss of time, they tied his arms, passed a running noose around his throat, and hung him to the branch of a tree called the big oak a tempestuous northerly wind began to blow and roar angrily, and it beat the puppet from side to side, making him swing violently, like the clatter of a bell ringing for a wedding. And the swinging gave him atrocious spasms. It's really bad. His breath failed him, and he could say no more. He shut his eyes, opened his mouth, stretched his legs, and gave a long shudder, and hung stiff and insensible. You heard right, Collodi had Pinocchio gruesomely hanged. This inspired so much angry fan mail that his editor demanded he bring the puppet back to life and continue the series, which he begrudgingly did. In Collodi's defense though, Pinocchio being hanged was pretty much par for the course. It's hard to see in Disney's version, but Pinocchio was intended to be a tongue in cheek, albeit bleak, morality tale. The simple moral? be good or suffer. Throughout the story, we see a mean-spirited and rude Pinocchio, a stand-in for all misbehaving children, robbed, starved, stabbed. And also, his legs get sawed off, but we're not supposed to feel especially sorry for him. His actions cause all of his suffering. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, Collodi also heaped on the psychological abuse, <laughs> making Pinocchio at one point think he had killed Geppetto and the Blue Fairy, which I didn't even know was possible. And while you and I, growing up in a media diet full of high-saturated Disney cuteness, might find the story repulsive, it's pretty run-of-the-mill if you're familiar with old German folklore. More recently, we've seen similarly gothic tones in children's books, like Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Now, let's be fair. Maybe you don't want your kids' bedtime story ending in gruesome death. But there's still something unsettling about the way a media giant like Disney can take a beloved fairy tale, purge it of its original intentions, and thus rewrite the narrative in our collective memories. Instead of saying faithful to Collodi's artistic intention, Disney did what it would continue to do for decades. Buy a story, bleach it in a caustic vat of cuteness, and pump it out in exchange for cold, hard cash. Gone were the dark, satiric overtones, and in their place were syrupy lines like this. Thank you, m'lady. He deserved to be a real boy." As for Pinocchio himself, he went from being a total frat-bro to the naive piece of pine we know and love today. In the process, his character design underwent similar changes, with Walt Disney scrapping the angular designs found in Collodi's story for a character model that can best be described as, "...what would happen if Mickey Mouse had a baby with a tree?" Obviously, Collodi's estate was kind of pissed, with his grandson suing Disney's Italian distributor for infringing on the moral copyright of the story. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's an adaptation. Artists are allowed to adapt, and sure, they are. Plenty of great art exists because someone took an existing story and made it their own, sometimes undercutting the original, like Pride and Prejudice, but add zombies. More seriously, something like There Will Be Blood took the first few pages of Upton Sinclair's equally awesome book, Oil, and basically threw away everything else. But nobody would accuse Paul Thomas Anderson of whitewashing oil, and I don't think Pride and Prejudice and Zombies has somehow cheapened the Jane Austen novel. Maybe part of the difference lies in formula and scale. hasn't created a billion dollar industry by stripping stories of their content and replacing them with a deranged Daniel Day-Lewis. Drain- Disney, on the other hand, regularly takes stories like Pinocchio or Sleeping Beauty or hell, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and throws them into the commercial meat grinder. Worse, they've been doing this pretty consistently for the past hundred years. Seriously, if you were to put all the Disney films on a spinning wheel, whatever you'd land on would likely be an adaptation in which the original story has been blanched, artistically ground down, and pumped out as a cute little Disney sausage. Actually, why don't we just spin that wheel and find out? Ah yes, the 1989 classic, The Little Mermaid. Timeless story in which a young mermaid makes a Faustian bargain with a sea witch to gain legs so she can win the hand of a hunky prince. Based on the Hans Christian Andersen tale of the same name, Disney's retelling strips the story of a lot of its darker and more religious overtones. In the Big Mouses version, we're treated to a love story that ends with a happily ever after. The prince ultimately realizes that he really digs this mermaid. The mermaid frees herself from the sea witch's curse, the prince harpoons said sea witch, and all is basically right with the world. The message? True love saves all. But the source material isn't nearly as happy or uplifting. That's because Anderson flatly rejected this message. First of all, his story portrays love primarily as suffering. For example, Anderson's mermaid doesn't just give away her voice in exchange for legs, but also endures the pain of being stabbed every time she takes a step. Nevertheless, she delights in dancing for the prince and making him happy. What's more, in Anderson's telling, the prince never returns the mermaid's affection. Instead he marries a local princess. So yeah, rough deal. But there's a reason for this. Anderson wanted the mermaid to be saved, not by love, but by sacrifice. At the start of the story, the mermaid despairs not just because she's half fish, but also because she doesn't have a soul and won't be able to chill with her prince in heaven. In fact, the whole bargain with the witch revolves around Ariel gaining a soul if she manages to kiss her true love. But as Anderson explained to a friend, he never wanted the mermaid to gain a soul simply because she fell in love with a straight-up hunk. He thought such an ending would be explicitly wrong. In short, Anderson would have despised Disney's ending, in which a kiss and a strategic boat crash saves the day. See, in Anderson's tale, the mermaid saves the day with a Christ-like sacrifice where she gives up her life and love to save the prince. And lo and behold, she's rewarded for her good deeds and turned into a gentle spirit. If she helps mankind for the next 300 years, she'll be rewarded with a soul. Hooray! Well, according to Anderson, this is the more natural, more divine path though it probably wouldn't have jacked up Disney's 1989 stock prices. And at this point, we could keep rambling off examples. The real Pocahontas is not a story about the freedom to love who you choose. It's about colonists kidnapping a Native American woman and murdering her husband. The original Sleeping Beauty is literally about a woman being non-consensually impregnated in her sleep and giving birth to twins, also in her sleep. Now, we're not gonna say Disney should be making more films about assault because that'd be horrible. However, the general Disney meat grinder, which polishes off any roughened and savory edges, comes with consequences. In the case of Pocahontas, it's a very shitty history lesson that some people might never question. But that's just the first of many ways that Disney's storytelling might actually be a major disservice for developing young minds. That's because most of the stories Disney adapts are fairy tales. And while these stories may often be dark and complex and vaguely disturbing, they also offer children a symbolic template for understanding the world. For example, in a children's cancer clinic, researchers found that patients were able to use fairy tales to express and cope with their anxieties. One child, for example, identified with the big bad wolf in Little Red Riding Hood, venting his frustration and anger by drawing an oversized wolf with massive teeth. Another child drew a comically tiny wolf as an expression of confidence and bravery in the face of his struggles. Here, we see how the darkness of fairy tales can actually offer a light to children confronting adversity, but Disney often strips these fairy tales of their bite, instead inserting a bland, wholesome narrative, as we saw with Pinocchio and the Little Mermaid. And ironically, in the process, Disney's developed new narratives that are, in their own rights, potentially quite destructive. As psychologist Susan Darker-Smith points out, young girls who identify with characters like Cinderella or Belle from Beauty and the Beast are more likely to end up in abusive relationships as adults. While interviewing victims of domestic abuse, Darker-Smith found that many identified with the heroines of these stories, in which love conquers all, believing that, if their love is strong enough, they can change their partner's behavior. Of course, the reality is tragically different. Ironically, by peddling a convenient narrative in which all the world's problems can be solved by true love, Disney fails to give children any tools for navigating real-life problems. And that was kind of the whole point of fairy tales, to convey the darker and crueler aspects of life so as to better prepare children for the realities of adulthood. Of course, this all begs the question, should Disney care? According to the legendary and incendiary free market economist Milton Friedman, definitely not he argued that companies don't have the same responsibilities that people do. A person might have a responsibility to be a nice neighbor or recycle, while a company's only responsibility is to make more money. And Friedman's definition of corporate responsibility has pretty much become gospel. In other words, Disney will only do what is required to make the most amount of money, regardless of the social consequences. It's the capitalist raison d'etre of companies the world over. And it explains why Disney operates acuteness factory. Indeed, when Disney went dark in the 1970s and 80s, it put out a series of grimmer, edgier films like The Black Cauldron that were huge box office failures and nearly brought about the collapse of the Great Empire of Mouse. The so-called Disney Renaissance of the 90s was a major course correction back into the sentimental cuteness that has sustained the company ever since. And it's no wonder. Cuteness, after all, has a very particular way of hijacking our brains. And more importantly, it sells. Studies have shown that cuteness increases our concentration, a useful trick to make sure humans pay close attention to their adorable young, or, you know, pay more attention to a dysfunctional snowman. Even more telling, when volunteers were hooked up to an MRI machine and bombarded with cute images, their nucleus accumbens, also known as the pleasure center of the brain, lit up and started pumping out dopamine. In other words, when viewers saw Mickey Mouse's adorable body bob up and down on screen 100 years ago, they were unwittingly receiving the first micro-doses of Disney-branded brain candy. Interestingly enough, the phenomenon of cuteness being used for potentially nefarious purposes has a name. Cultural theorist Joshua Paul Dale calls it evil cute. And while Dale specifically cites gambling machines that use cute cartoon kittens as an example, it's not hard to argue that Disney's precious animated friends might also qualify. In the end, cuteness is just a means for Disney to pad its bottom line, regardless if it's telling stories that are ultimately good for children.
5: I asked Abigail Disney to help unpack the ways that business norms have changed. How corporate leadership in the 80s and 90s underwent this ideological shift. And she told me that so much of it goes back to this op-ed written by the influential economist Milton Friedman. It was written in 1970 and published in The New York Times. The title of this op-ed? A Friedman Doctrine. The social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. That was the title. Yeah.
8: What's stunning is how quickly... Because we consider it's only 1987, so only 17 years after that article, that you have Gordon Gecko saying, greed is good. Right. And that's the basis. That's the that's the moral underpinning of the argument that shareholder primacy. Everybody benefits if every business runs as efficiently as possible and makes as much money as possible. And and you've got Gordon Gecko saying greed is good. And the audience is cheering. I was in New York. I watched in the theater and the audience was cheering as though he was the good guy when he was the villain of the piece.
5: Uh, you know, what's it's interesting to, to hear you talk about how this concept of shareholder, you know, primacy came about in the 70s and 80s, because what's entirely counter to that and might have existed more before that is the exact opposite, something called stakeholder primacy, where you think as much about the customers and the employees and the community as you do the shareholders. Yes, and, and I think we forget that that like ever existed.
8: Yeah. And, you know, it it comes from a um, an almost absolutist material way of understanding the nature of the world, right? Because if you take out of business everything that is intangible, um, then you can't come to any other conclusion. That then that shareholders matter and nothing else does. It, in order to believe that stakeholders matter, that your employees actually have more than just a contractual relationship with you, those ideas are based on intangibles, things like morals, ethics, beliefs, and communitarian values. And right now, if you talk at all about mutuality, what you're dismissed as is a socialist immediately. As though there's nothing in between this pure individualism that we're working with now, and Marx, there's no nothing on the com, you know continuum between those two things.
5: <laughs> so 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 fast forward, we began to see shareholder primacy uh, take precedence over stakeholder primacy in the seventies and eighties. The shift for corporations becomes profit, profit, profit. Now we're in twenty twenty one. You are campaigning for Disney. To address that shift, Mm -hmm. what specifically are you asking Mm -hmm. Disney to do?
8: What I want Disney to do is to completely realign its um, practices uh, from a corporate standpoint around the idea that its employees are not interchangeable cogs in a machine. So there's there's something called the B Corp. Have you ever heard of the B Corp movement? No, tell me. So, tell me. you know, it's a, it's a relatively small movement of businessmen and women and people in business schools and people who write about business who are trying to figure out how to certify and quantify the value of a business when you include all the values that aren't strictly material. So um, it's more than just what they call ESG, um, which is um, socially responsible investing. Um, it's, it's, it's putting all the pieces together, like where are you on the environment, and, and are you really addressing discrimination, and how are you treating your employees, and how are you looking after the long-term interests of the community with your work, and is your product damaging to the people you're selling it to, and all those things. And so people can apply for a B Corp certification And then there's this neutral third party that goes in and tells you, here are the things you have to change if you want to certify as this social benefit corporation. And I would love to see Disney become tomorrow the biggest B Corp in the world.
5: I want to take a second just to dig into the almost absurdity of some of the numbers that we see floating around Disney right now. Can you give us a sense of some of the numbers that show the scale of that disparity right now at Disney?
8: Basically, it's 200,000 people. Are employed by that company. Um, over twenty thousand have been laid off. Wow. So that's a pretty significant bite ten. out of. Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, overrepresented in that twenty thousand will be the people at the bottom of the pay scale, the people who can least accommodate that. The share price. Is through the roof because, as you know, the stock market is through the roof in spite of the fact that the company is losing money, in spite of the fact that that the revenues have been eviscerated because the well, they're not
5: putting movies in theaters. Of exactly, course losing money. so A lot so of money. it yeah. it
8: shows you where shareholder primacy takes you, and it reinforces the idea that your share price can be totally unrelated to the well-being of the people inside of your company.
5: Have you talked with low-wage Disney employees since the pandemic hit, since the layoffs hit? What are they saying and how are they doing?
8: Yes, I have. Um, And yeah, they're terrified. They're really terrified because, you know, the folks I've talked to have things like asthma and diabetes and all the pre-existing conditions that come with A, poverty and B, higher risk for COVID. So, there was real fear that they'd be forced to go back to work, um, and that didn't happen in California because Gavin Newsom sort of pushed back on Disney. But, of course, Ron Sand has said, come on in to Orlando. And then there's all the uncertainty. But, I, I mean, I know people who work from 11 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning. And then they go home and they get their kids ready for school, and then they clean the house, and then they do the shopping, and then they sleep for two or three hours, have dinner, help the homework, and go back to work. I mean, I would love to see any CEO do that one night and tell wow. me they shouldn't be paid better.
5: You know, when I think about Disney and this image you're painting of Disney, that is one side of the company, but there is another side of the company that projects really well. Yes. You know, Disney, like a lot of other corporations, has just gotten a lot more woke in the last few years in the last decade or two and the conversation particularly for entertainment companies like disney is all right what are you doing about racial equity and gender equity and they do the thing where you can get prominent women and people of color in prominent positions or you can make a movie where the lead is black and those things are nice and they're good but it sometimes feels as if they are how, how can i just be blunt and say it? distractionary tactics
8: yeah yeah
5: from like the real dollars and cents of this stuff how do you feel about that Representative work that Disney is doing in the midst of this this financial stuff.
8: The high profile executive woman I refer to as girl washing, right? Oh um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All you have to know is like go really close to where the money is and ask yourself who's there and you'll know all you need to know about fairness at that company because Mm. boy the women and the people of color start to disappear the closer and closer you get to the center Mm. right so Mm. these are big deep structural problems and it's great to make the Black Panther there's no question that was a brilliant piece of it changed the culture it was a
5: cultural reset it was
8: really important it wasn't even just a moment most movies are moments and this was so much bigger than that but like Who's pulling down the 1,400 times the median workers' pay? And who's making the decisions about where the capital is allocated and why and how? And then you start to see, oh, it does get a little whiter and a little mailer the more we work our way into the center of this decision-making body. And this is true at every company in America. That's not just Disney.
5: So, you know, we were talking earlier in this chat about this shift in the corporate mindset from stakeholder primacy to shareholder primacy. And it might allow some listeners to think that there was a time before this stuff. When got everything so was bad. fine. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, but that was also a time when people yeah. of color and women were totally shut out exactly. from all fair wages and wealth creation. Exactly. So in a way, yeah. is what you're asking for now, is it something that's actually never happened before? a basic financial security for yes. all working Americans regardless of yeah. race or gender. the
8: problem with looking back at 1956 or whatever, you know, a 95% sometimes income tax rate, you know, an 80-something percent corporate tax rate, and yet companies were thriving and building and doing really well. And arguably, a lot of the thriving that was happening then was happening because for the middle class, because the middle class was just white and male. White. I yeah. mean, the, the, yeah. the pool of potential employees for any given job was way smaller. And so it was possible to pay everybody better. It was possible to supply health and pensions and all the rest of that. So as the world has gotten at least attempted to be fairer and more people have joined the workforce who should have always been in it, it's gotten harder to accomplish these kinds of things. Mm. But while that was happening, while Jim Crow was hopefully being addressed and we were trying to do better in employment and housing and all of that... Companies were also shifting their ethos away from being just. So the society was going one direction, but corporations were going Mm. the opposite direction. So we have to be very careful of the temptation to say, oh, we have to go back to when it was good because it wasn't good. It's good for who? Yeah. Good for who? (laughs) It it wasn't good. You know, I mean, yes, my grandfather would never have allowed for a person working for him for a lifetime to retire without a pension. That would have been unthinkable to him. He also did not hire very many black people or women. Uh. And, you know, he oversaw and funded the making of Song of the South. So this is bad, (laughs) unequivocally. things can be true. So, yes, that's the problem that we need to kind of get to. We need to be able to, and this is true, actually, up and down and across everything related to our society right now. We need to be able to learn how to take in that this is a bad thing existing at the same time in the same person with this other good thing and we have to be able to hold those both things in our heads at the same time
6: it all started with a mouse but thanks to the hard work of countless disney staff and no women or black people my dream of putting my name on everything a human being might come into contact with before age 18 has become a reality. And can any of you name even one of those talented Disney animators? Max Fleischer! Exactly, no one important. So how did I take the work of thousands of artists and boil all the credit down into one name? My name. The name, uh, on the castle. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. And it didn't have anything to do with Tinkerbell's magic fairy dust or Dumbo's magic feather or or even Br'er Rabbit's Tar Baby shenanigans, God help us. No, it was through relentless vision. From childhood, I pursued my vision without ever questioning its lasting impact, or my own motivation, or whether building a sprawling empire out of a cartoon mouse might in fact be the delusion of a madman. I made my vision happen by sheer force of will and with exacting standards, uh, the kind of standards that led my own employees to call me an asshole and a shit publicly to stage massive strikes over their long hours and low pay, and for me, subsequently, to tell the FBI that those union leaders of theirs were communist agitators just to get them hauled away. Like I said, vision. After all, in my vision of the Disney universe, there's no room for pinko-liberal-bleeding hearts to spoil the magic of families paying $100 a head just so their kids can take pictures with college football mascots and furries. It's the same reason I didn't hire black people in my parks. Actually, a lot of fantasias about that, aside from all the devil worship. And speaking of wild flights of fancy, did you know that many women applied to be Disney animators in the early days? (laughs) Fortunately, I nipped that in the bud with a letter declaring the drawing of cartoon animals to be the sole domain of young, virile American men, saving us all, I'm sure, from a spate of animated shorts about the washing up and that time of the monthlies. But that's not to say the fair sex has nothing to offer us. I was the only children's entertainer with the vision to meet with Nazi propagandist Lenny Riefenstahl shortly after Kristallnacht when everyone else in town refused on moral principles. Well, I just call it old-fashioned rudeness. And I think my friends at the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals would agree. Those guys liked me so much they stuck by me after I got caught calling the Seven Dwarves an N-word pile. (laughs) Great group of guys. And with their help and with the help of thousands of other people who have chosen to remain anonymous in the annals of history for some reason, the Disney brand has affected every aspect of modern culture. From our helpless, beautiful, man-dependent princesses to our many orphan protagonists to our whitewashing of whole genocides, we, and by we I, I really mean I here, have taken sheer vision and turned it into the stories your sons and daughters fear and aspire to. You see, I've made the world a better, more magical, and, as Lenny would say, purer place. And important people have taken notice. Like, uh, did you know that those folks at that upstart fast food chain McDonald's credit-copying Disney branding with their current dominant market share? I say good luck to them. And you're welcome, heart disease medication manufacturers of the world. (laughs) (laughs) If one thing can show you that all you really need in this life is vision and the willingness to put your name very, very large on things. Here's the kicker. You see this mouse? Well, the thing is, I didn't even create him. I stole him from either the Performo Toy Company or Felix the Cat or, or Oswald the Rabbit or Milton Mouse or Ignat's Mouse. Honestly, I, I can't even remember. There, there were a lot of cartoon mice flying around at the time. It was a crazy decade. All I remember is this. I, uh, I sat old Oob works down and had him draw Steamboat Willie entirely himself. And then, I went to Oob, and I said, Oob better clean out your desk, because you don't I works here anymore. And then, when Oob tried to start his own studio, I crushed it. Now, Honest Engine, and I, I know that's an oxymoron, don't get started, but Honest Engine, I haven't drawn one of my own cartoons since 1929. Because it's not about the cartoons, or the content, or the product. It's about a world of Disney. It's about a universe of cartoon rodents in pants. It's about making so, so, so much money. Well, there you have it. That's the story of a humble old visionary who whitewashed his own narrative as he did so many other stories to the point that this young Jim Stewart type is playing him in movies. And not just any movies. Disney movies.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with propaganda in two parts, examining the racism baked into classic Disney characters and plots, still processing, discuss why we are so willing to overlook problematic movies for the sake of entertainment and comfort, Lindsay Ellis looked at Disney's pivot to nodding at progressives while upholding the systems we criticize, American Hysteria looked back at the Disney park of American history that could have been, Wisecrack looked at what it means to Disneyfy classic stories. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders spoke with Walt Disney's granddaughter who wants Disney to certify as a B Corp. And we heard a Dead Talk from cracked imagining what old Walt would have said about himself in an inspirational speech today that's what everyone heard but members also heard bonus clips including another from American Hysteria explaining in depth just how much Disney has always known about the power of cuteness as a tool of persuasion and wise crack discussed the evolution of copyright law and the central role Disney has played in stifling culture and creativity by lobbying to extend copyright protections far beyond their intended usefulness. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofaleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership, because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
2: Hi Jay, this is Allison from Colorado. I love the show about the insurrection. However, unfortunately Roger Ray engaged in a little bit of ableism in your discussion with him at the end. When talking about mental health, he touted that being out in nature, being social, and engaging in social activism is a better cure for depression than serotonin meds. While it is true that these things are extremely helpful, with depression and other mental health issues, the idea that they are a better way of dealing with depression is a dangerous myth. Many people actually do this in combination with meds and find the entire combination lifestyle changes like Roger Ray mentions plus medication plus therapy and support such as world service organization groups like AA, the most helpful. Then he says as sort of an aside that he's not giving pharmacological advice, but since he addresses the drugs in a kind of judgmental way, the damage has been done. The problem is that some people's brains just don't produce enough serotonin, so they, and I'm included in this group, need the drugs producing the serotonin in order to get to the point where they can even get out of bed in order to do the other helpful things like being out in nature, being social, etc. I know it wasn't intentional, and I like Roger Ray. However, the idea that you can cure everyone's depression without medication is ableist. Thanks as always for the awesome show.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at Bestofleft.com. There is nothing special you need to do to have your message be used as a voicemail. You just send me an email and I'll take it from there. Uh, thanks to Allison for her message. It happens to be very well-timed as a, a sort of a lead-in to a quick story that I want to tell about today's show. But first, a quick setup. Many, I think, will have maybe had at least a passing glance of the op-ed article that went a little viral a week, couple of weeks ago, viral enough that the New York Times did a write up about it. There was a guy who wrote an article about Disney in the Orlando Sentinel, talking about how how Disney is too woke and it's ruining his experience. It was a very absurd article, and pretty much anyone with a reasonable amount of sense saw it as absurd and maybe got a chuckle out of it, or you know, or, or a depressing head shake in response. And it was a very coincidentally timed article. We were actually working on this episode before that came out, but it has given me some things to think about. I like to take things like that and not just dismiss them as absurd, even though they are. I like to see what I can learn from it about real people with real opinions and perspectives who share this person's opinion that... The experience of going to Disney is being ruined by Disney's attempt to make their parks less racist or less, you know, otherwise problematic with the benefit of (laughs) new knowledge and hindsight. And they think, okay, maybe we shouldn't perpetuate the sale of the wenches or the cartoonish representation of the native Person, You know, selling his shrunken heads. Like, maybe that's just not a good image to help perpetuate. But what we can learn from this article is, first of all, what he doesn't say. So he doesn't defend racist caricatures at Disney by saying that racism is appropriate. 50 years ago, you could easily imagine that being the case. And that is not the case. He's not defending racism on the merits of racism. He's defending it on the basis that it's harmless. No one thinks that these racist representations are real. It's just Disney, you know? Like, we're just in an immersive experience, and kids aren't affected by the things they say. That doesn't, like, create impressions in their minds that last for for decades. There's no danger of normalizing the dehumanization of minorities. Just chill out. This is all wokeness gone too far, right? That's his argument. So obviously, it's still a silly argument, but it's a telling one. You know, he's, he's at least making the basic conceit that racism isn't to be celebrated, but he's also dismissing any attempts to diminish it. And I think that that ties up in a neat little bow exactly the state of play for white supremacy right now. That is exactly the point on the arc of the moral universe where we are currently situated. Racism is bad. It is universally accepted by polite society, but trying to stop racism is also bad. That's what mainstream white supremacist culture Believes and would have you believe if they could convince you. Anyway, I'm thinking that this concept is pretty well established in the minds of most listeners. It doesn't need to be explained a whole lot more. But getting back to Allison and her voicemail, I think I see a parallel, and or and I can even feel it. I can feel a parallel in myself. It's not just external. I'm not just judging others. I can feel it in myself. I feel like that when it comes to ableism. A lot of the people listening, and not me consciously, but me subconsciously, definitely. I'm, I'm still not all the way to the point of fully and deeply understanding ableism, how it works, the harm that is done. Like, I just have so much more knowledge and awareness about racism than about ableism, that it's it's just – it's a – ignorance issue. It's a lack of knowledge issue, not a lack of caring issue. But I think that a lot of the people who are fully on board with understanding the danger and the damage of racism and the need to squash it and how they would read, the idea that Disney is too woke and that guy's complaining about it and and understand the absurdity of it on its face, would then hear about ableism And the requests for people to change their language and have at least a flicker, if not a sometimes full-throated rebuttal that sounds just like that guy, that, oh, I mean, come on, no one means anything bad by it, right? I mean, language has changed. Sure, maybe those words used to be clinical, but we don't use them that way anymore, and so, if my intent isn't bad, then it shouldn't be bad and we shouldn't have to change. And so, aren't we just pushing this a little bit too far? Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it maybe even feel familiar? Because it, it does for me. I don't, as I said, I don't consciously think that way. I consciously think this is something uh, I am happily willing to accept, needs to be changed. The disability, mental health community has said it needs to be changed just because I don't understand it fully and deeply doesn't, you know, I I don't have to understand it fully and deeply to just accept they know better than me. It affects them in a way that it doesn't affect me. So I'm going to take their lead. I'm happy to do that. But it's still a sticking point. And we've all grown up with ableist language in our vocabulary and it's, it comes out naturally and so just a quick story about today's show, listen to this clip that I decided to edit out of the show because I didn't think it added very much. And frankly, when I heard it, it being aware of ableist language, I thought, whew, that was, it was just like over the top.
8: I would love to see Disney become tomorrow the biggest B Corp in the world. It would be a massive mm. change. It's asking something crazy of them. And I don't see yeah. why we shouldn't ask something crazy of them. Wasn't it crazy for them to exist in the first place?
5: <laughs> Wasn't Mickey Mouse itself as an idea crazy? Yes, Come exactly. On, Imagine,
8: mouse? Walt said, let's buy a <laughs> bunch of oars groves in that like tiny podunk town, Anaheim, and build a crazy imaginary place there. And people will drive what? to it and spend money to be there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of it was nuts.
0: So the sentiment behind that... I actually did think was interesting and worthy of being shared. The over-the-top, excessive use of ableist language that I know to be a problem for the disability and mental health community. I thought, okay, I'm going to take that out. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to include that if I don't have to, and you know, I'll, I'll play it at the end, and we'll talk about it, and we'll expose it as a teachable moment, and it can have a, you know, a beneficial use in that way, but to just leave it in the show uncommented upon, I thought, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. But just to wrap up, I want to super over-the-top clarify that I'm not comparing or equating certainly racist language and the effects of that, and ableist language and the effects of that, I'm drawing parallels and similarities. Where the impacts of all of that go are different enough that it doesn't make sense to compare. But the dynamic of how society and language evolves and changes, usually because of progressive urging to move society in a better direction, and the hesitancy that a large Portion of the society uh, has about those changes. I think those parallels are interesting. And when we can find a moment when there is an instance that we think, well, yes, that is common sense and obvious that we should move along that way, and another instance where I think for many people it is not going to be as obvious and common sense, that I hope by drawing those parallels we can uh, have those questions be raised in a way that makes us think a little harder about whether ableism is something we want to put time and effort into expunging from our language and our thinking. And I, I am in that process myself. I am by no means perfect, but I am in that process and I hope you all are too. And now, just one last reminder, this is the last opportunity I'm going to have to say that we have a live event coming up with myself and Roger Ray that Allison was referring to when we made our announcement. That is coming up on Monday, just a mere handful of days from now, so I won't be speaking to you again before that, so this is the last opportunity for you to go to bestofleftcom slash live. That'll take you to exactly where you need to go. You can register. It's all free, and it's happening Monday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern. If you don't live on the East Coast, you have to do your own math. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to jayatbestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, graphic design, bonus show co-hosting, and so on. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support